1: Hello once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I'm your host, Clayton Fletcher, back in New York. After my brief Midwestern road trip, (laughs) Um, I had a lot of fun. Appreciate the uh, feedback on last week's episode, guys. It uh, may have sounded a little bit different because I was recording in a hotel room instead of my usual uh, New York City apartment with all of the sounds of the police and my neighbors that you may or may not be able to hear in the background. There are some sirens outside my window right now and my neighbors seem to be arguing with their dog, which is not unusual for a New York City apartment situation. Anyway, I'm happy to be bringing you another edition of the podcast. As usual, my scheduled guest, Backed out at the last minute, and this happens right on the day when a Twitter user that I respect very much, um, I I don't even remember what the Twitter handle is, Rachel Lees, uh, not her real name, it's a false account, Uh, it's a pseudonym, if you will. There's some name for this where people create other accounts because they want to be able to talk more frankly about things without actually putting their real name. Uh, Irritable human is what she (laughs) calls herself. I actually can't even confirm that this person is, in fact, female, but uh, a very intelligent and thoughtful Twitter user who tweets about a variety of topics including poker and is clearly a listener to not only this podcast but several other poker podcasts as well basically made a mild complaint this afternoon as this is being recorded on August 15th about how it seems like poker podcasts have the same guests all the time Uh, and you know we're guilty of that Well, I mean, it's TPE, so I like to talk to Derek and Mark. They don't even count as guests because they're actually uh, the original hosts of the podcast. So I don't think that that's what she's necessarily uh, referring to. But, you know, obviously we have Andrew on a lot. We have Carlos on a lot. I think it's because these guys give us great content each and every time I invite them to come on and be a guest on, on the podcast, I end up getting great Material Great interview. Uh, They bring in interesting hands. They have interesting ideas and they've done a lot of podcasts. And that was kind of her point. Like it seems like the same six people appearing on every single poker podcast on and on and on. And she would like to see more variety. Can we start to invite some different guests on some recreational players, maybe people from other industries who love poker? Um, And I love this idea. But, you know, it's funny that my guest just canceled like two hours ago before I started recording today um, because it was going to be someone who has never been on the (laughs) on the podcast in its many multi-year history. And so it just uh, that was a point that I made um, kind of responding to her complaint is that, you know, one reason why you hear Carlos and Andrew and the others on the podcast so often is because when I book them, I know that they're going to be responsible and actually show up and not cancel on me an hour or two before we go to record. And now here we are this evening. Uh, and I just got a cancellation a short while ago. So that is kind of, uh, maybe the, uh, unseen magic that, <laughs> that goes into why the same people end up on each other's podcasts all the time. Um, uh, However, I have to say, and I'm humbled by this and very proud of it at the same time, uh, I get good feedback on the solo episodes. Now, the first time I ever recorded a solo episode was about one year ago. Now, guys, I took over hosting this podcast about a year ago. I can't believe it's been a year already. Uh, but yeah, it was shortly after last year's uh, World Series main event, um, And, you know, my name was getting out there a little bit more due to the deep run that I had in that tournament. And uh, it was the right time for me to start a new little side career, if you will, (laughs) hosting a poker podcast, which is something I've always uh, wanted to do. Um, The first time I did a solo, I thought, man, no one's going to listen to this. Who wants to hear me talk to myself for 45 minutes to an hour? It turns out more than one person is willing to listen, and uh, that's all it takes for me. I am a stand-up comedian. I want everyone to love me, but even if just a few people are paying attention, I will continue to talk. Any comedians who are listening to this understand what I just said to the fullest. Anyway, um, today, because I kind of had to take a a, a 180 in, in the direction that I was planning to go... Uh, Just in the last few minutes here, I dug up some hands that I played in this year's main event. So uh, last week, we talked a little bit about day two of that tournament. And uh, this week, I thought that I could continue on with a few more hands from day two. So uh, I love the feedback, guys. Tweet me at Clayton Comic. Leave your reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever else you happen to get your podcasts. Uh, If you have not yet joined Tournament Poker Edge, you really need to do that. You can get amazing content from all of our unbelievable coaches for as little as $25 a month with an annual subscription. That is dirt cheap. I promise it pays for itself in the first week that you use it, if you use it. So uh, with that out of the way, let's talk about a couple of hands that your boy played at the Rio in the main event 2019. When we last left our hero me (laughs) when we last left me I was building the 58,000 that I started day two with up to uh, I think at the end of the last episode I had about 160,000. Well this next hand is uh, a little bit later and I had continued to run it up about halfway through the day, I guess. And the blinds were 600, 1,200 with a 1,200 ante. And we had 260,000. So by any measure, we're doing great. Uh, the M in this case is like almost 90, which is obviously phenomenal. Over 200 big blinds. Um, The average stack at this point in the tournament was probably just over 100,000, maybe closer to 120, somewhere in that range. So we were just, you know, very happy to be building and building and building. Uh, I think this is the last level before the dinner break, if I'm not mistaken, which I might be. Um, But yeah, I believe that's what it was. So day two, we have been at that same table I was describing uh, last time which was our starting table uh, but a few of the characters have changed the hand I want to talk about right now ends up heads up so we don't have to really concern ourselves with anyone other than my eventual opponent I suppose it was folded to me in the cutoff uh, again six hundred, twelve hundred with a 1200 ante and everybody folds to me in the cutoff with Ace-10 offsuit Ace of Spades, ten of Hearts. I think uh, I I would open at even the toughest table with this hand. So regardless of who my potential opponents are, I think this is an open. Um, a lot of the players at the table had been min raising to twenty four hundred, uh, maybe twenty five hundred. I don't know. I go a little bigger just because that way it's a bigger mistake when they call with worse. It's kind of negligible, especially when we have this many blinds. But I opened to 2,700. So uh, the button folds. So I'm in the cutoff. The button folds. And then the small blind, which is actually the newest player at the table. He replaced uh, the Indonesian player that I described on our last episode, So he's our small blind now, and he three bets to 8,000 with 150,000 behind. So let's talk about what to do. The big blind folds, and now the action's on me. Do I want to keep raising with ace-10? Do I want to fold and assume my hand is is garbage? Uh, Or do I want to call and take a flop? I think uh, folding here is a little tight, especially because we don't know much about our opponent and the best I can do is tell you he got to our table a few minutes ago um his stack is a little bit above average he's in his 30s a white kid uh I don't know if I can call someone in their 30s a kid but I guess we all just call each other kid all the time um probably a regular uh doesn't seem too overwhelmed by the magnitude of making day two of the main event, as many of your opponents in this tournament do seem a bit overwhelmed and bewildered. Uh, Doesn't seem to know anyone at the table, doesn't appear to recognize me, which uh, I think is something I look for now that I've gotten some TV exposure. I actually prefer if they haven't seen me play on TV. Uh, But many players are good at hiding the fact that they know you. Uh, I'm pretty good at it too. I've actually played... Against um, you know players that I, I'm I listen to their podcast or or you know, whatever and and they might not realize that I do uh, know who they are so just the fact that he hasn't acknowledged that he knows anyone at the table doesn't mean that he doesn't but from what I can tell he seems like a reg he might even live in Vegas um, that seems comfortable playing in the main event so that's what he's doing and he's made it eight thousand from the small blind. I think that I can definitely make a case for re raising here. Many players don't ever call with any of their hands from out of the small blind, particularly versus a late position raiser like me. So, since I open from the cutoff, many players will have a three bet or fold strategy from the small blind which by the way is not a bad strategy but if you if you end up three betting with hands you should fold too often then you do leave yourself susceptible to a fairly light four bet here I am holding ace 10 I think generally speaking that's a pretty light four bet uh, if I choose to make it but there is a case for making it Um, I block some hands that would five bet. You know, a lot of those hands include an ace, and I have one. Um, Also, I might even be able to get action from worse. You know, if he three bet, as many of us would, with something like king, queen of spades, or even king, jack of spades, you know, uh, many players will never call. But of course, you want to see a flop against a late position raiser with king, jack of spades. So this is kind of a way that we could consider exploiting the tendency of players to three bet rather than ever calling from out of the small blind. Now, I don't know enough about this opponent to say with any kind of certainty that he actually does that, but the fact that he might be doing that because so many of my opponents, aka the field as a whole, seems to have gotten away from flatting from the small blind Uh, In many cases, people flat 0% of their hands from the small blind, which means ace-10 is suddenly stronger than it appears to be, uh, assuming that players still want to get involved with hands like king-jack suited, queen-jack suited, maybe even jack-10 suited. uh, Who among us wants to fold that hand uh, just for one small raise from a late position opponent? Hardly any of us, right? So if you are interested in playing and you've already decided that you're never going to call from the small blind, then you probably have too many three bets in your range overall. This is all theory because again, I don't have a solid read on this opponent and how he handles his small blind as a whole versus a late position raiser because he's only been at my table for a few minutes. Um, All that said, I did decide to just call, take a flop in position with a deep stack against an opponent who also has a very deep stack—well, um, not very deep—but he's got over a hundred big blinds, and his m is over fifty, which is fine for me to see a flop in position, even in a three-bet pot. So the flop is—the uh, pot is now eighteen thousand, and it's a good flop for us: Ace of Hearts, Seven of Spades, Deuce of Spades, Ace. of seven deuce with two spades and we have the ace of spades and 10 of hearts so we have top pair 10 kicker and a backdoor nut flush draw our opponent c bets as we probably expect him to at least 60 to 70 percent of the time having three bet pre and he bets Exactly half the pot. Well, almost exactly half the pot. We're estimating this pot around 18,000. It's actually 18.4 or something, whatever. He bets 9,000, half the pot. And the choices here are only calling and raising. I mean, we're not going to fold the top pair, at least not yet. And we also have that backdoor spade draw just in case. So I think raising is fine, especially because there are a lot of turn cards that, count, that can come that would allow us to put additional pressure on our opponent. But the reason I don't want to raise here is because I don't think I can get many or any better hands to fold. I mean, in in Villain's shoes, holding ace-jack, aren't you just going to call that raise? And if he doesn't have ace-jack or better, then don't we actually want him to call? When we raise and then what are we trying to do build a huge pot with ace 10 I, I don't really know how that strategy uh makes sense so i mean i suppose it would help us get him to fold it in ace jack or ace queen or possibly ace king later if it comes another spade and we want to try to represent a flush i, I suppose we do want to raise sometimes on this flop when we have a flush draw. So maybe not having a flush draw but having the ace of spades lends that particular line a little more merit. Um, but I think all things considered, particularly not having a ton of information about this specific opponent, I think it's fine to just take the little the slightly more uh, conservative approach and just call and see what happens on the turn. Now let's note, because I don't know my opponent very well, and because I'm not exactly in love with my hand, uh, I think we should consider folding if he makes a sizable bet on a non-spade turn. So in other words, say something like the eight of diamonds comes on the turn, and our opponent bets pretty big this time, having bet half the pot on the flop, suppose he bets like two thirds or even three quarters of the pot on the turn or more. I think ACE 10 really shrivels up in that spot because what, what are we really up against there? I mean, he has to be concerned that he's out kick if he happened to three bet pre-flop with something like ACE five of diamonds, for example, which many of us do include those types of hands into our, in our uh, three betting range, especially again out of the small blind. So it wouldn't be, uh, you know, it would make sense for him to slow down on the turn with an ace that we can actually beat. So if he fires again, he's either bluffing or we're probably behind. Now that's pretty exploitable, but, You know, I'm going to have many stronger hands in my range as well when I flat the flop. So I'm not concerned about uh, getting outplayed too often by opponents who just have a bet, bet, bet strategy with all of their range uh, when they have been the uh, aggressor pre-flop as our opponent has been in this hand, at least the last aggressor. So with all that said, I call here, but I'm not exactly trying to get all the way to showdown with just ace 10 unimproved uh no matter what comes and i think that's important to point out because yeah you want to have some top pairs in your bluff catching range if you will but i really think that given the three bet pre-flop ace 10 doesn't necessarily have to be a part of that range of bluff catchers uh So yeah, the turn is a good one. It's a tray of spades. So our board is now ace, seven, deuce, tray with three spades. And we, again, have the ace of spades and ten of hearts. So this is a a very welcome sight. We've now picked up the nut flush draw to go with our top pair of aces. And even more good news, our opponent checks. Now here I think we have a decision. There is... 36,000 in the pot and uh, we can bet if we want to uh, I think you have a value bet here versus hands like ace 5 of diamonds I mentioned earlier Um, you know there are some aces that our opponent can call a reasonable bet with again on the turn Uh, I mentioned earlier that I think he would mostly be checking um, his weaker aces after I call his flop C bet. He also has to be concerned that I might even have a flush um, because there are now three spades on the board. So checking and calling with some of those hands would make sense. Uh, The problem with betting is that he should also be checking and calling with hands that beat us such as ace-jack, ace-queen, and ace-king, which should probably check call here and then maybe check call again on the river if it's not a spade. Um, certainly if he has something like ace-king offsuit with the king of spades, he could even get really creative and check raise with the second nut flush draw, uh, if I bet. So with all that It's pretty close, I think, between betting and checking. And now having thought about this hand uh, after the fact, I think checking is actually a superior play because we might even be able to get some value for our hand if the river bricks and he checks again. And if he three-bet pre-flop with a value hand like pocket queens, I think we might be able to get a curious call on the end having... Uh, check behind on the turn so i do think we have a two streets of value type of hand but i think it's better to try to get that extra value on the river when it could look a little bit more suspicious uh our opponent might think if we if we wait till the river to bet our hand uh our opponent might think we just missed some kind of spade draw maybe we had like a king queen with the king of spades and we never got there. So now our only chance of winning the pot is to put in a a bluff and we might be able to get value from hands like pocket jacks, pocket queens or what have you that our pair of aces beats. Um, Likewise for those ace five of diamonds type of hands that uh, have now picked up a gut shot. They might, I don't know that that's actually a case for betting here. So, all things considered, I think it is close. And I think that checking is slightly better. I'd love to know what you guys think, because to me, this is the important street. Uh, in real life, I bet 13500 into the 36000 pot. And my opponent called. It's not the end of the world that he called. I still could be ahead. Um, it feels less likely but it's still possible, especially if our opponent picked up uh, a straight draw with something like Ace-5 of diamonds, Ace-4 of diamonds. Both have uh, wheel draws now on the board of Ace-7, deuce, and then the tray on the turn. So it's not a disaster. Also, even if we are beat right now, we certainly have outs because we have the nut flush draw. So I wasn't uh, too concerned about being called. Although my instinct in the moment did tell me that I was likely beat. Um, Sometimes I can't put my finger on it, but I just have a sense that I'm beat. I don't know if it's all the hours I've spent playing live poker um, and seeing how opponents act when they're strong and knowing that when he called, he called with a certain amount of confidence that a player has when he's got something like Ace King and he checks and somebody bets. You know, he's not sure he's good, but he's sure enough that he's probably got ace 10 beat. Um, so it's getting a little dicey for hands worse than ace 10. So I think that most of my opponent's calling range, even getting the four to one that I've offered him, is hands that have us beat. So we're looking for a 10 or a spade on the river. And it comes the four of hearts. So that ace five I keep mentioning did get there. So that was a hand that I was worried about. Ace-4 also has us beat now because it made two pair on the end. Um, And those were hands that I thought were squarely in our opponent's check calling range on the turn. So, with 63,000 in the pot, our opponent now has approximately 120,000, about two times the pot behind. And he checks this river. If you told me that you want to shove here and overbet the pot to the tune of 200%. I wouldn't call you crazy. Um, It's a play that I actually considered in the moment. I think that there's a lot of merit to that play. Uh, Just going for it here, knowing that it's the main event, and knowing that players fold too often, I think it's a tough call even with ace-king, even with ace-four or some other two-pair hand. You know, what am I doing that with? It's so polarized between a flush and nothing that it's a profitable play. And it's pretty obvious that my opponent should not have many, if any, flushes in this situation. And he's also got to worry about me having a five. So the question is, do we want to take that kind of high risk, high reward spot here just to win this 63K I don't know. Maybe I should have. Ultimately, I decided I don't know enough about this opponent to to risk that many chips trying to get him to lay down an ace-king type of hand, which I think again, is a big part of his range here. Uh, I thought it was a good chance it could work. I think any other bluff is getting called rather easily. I think it's just got to be a shove because in this tournament you really want to threaten people's tournament lives. This might sound crazy to many of you who play a more conservative style than I do, but in a lot of the tournaments, when you've been following me on Twitter at Clayton Comic and I say I have three times the average stack or four times the average stack in this tournament, um That's how I got those big stacks. And then in those same tournaments, when I announced that I busted 20 minutes later, that's how I busted as well. So as you guys know, if you've listened to this podcast more than once, I'm not afraid to take a huge variance, high variance line from time to time. But if I take them all, I'm pretty much a donkey. So although I considered it here, I decided to check and see if there's any way I can win this pot by checking Uh, My opponent won with the Ace Queen, and he had the Queen of Spades. So he had Ace of Diamonds, Queen of Spades. So everything that he did in his hand is perfectly in line. Uh, You know, he C-bets the flop. He checks when the flush comes in, uh, and is probably planning to call because he's holding the uh, Queen of Spades in his hand. Um, Of course, he can't know that I have the Ace of Spades in mine, and then... Uh, checking, planning to call the river. Now, I don't know how he would have responded, of course, to that shove we discussed a moment ago, but uh, because I did not actually pull that particular trigger, we'll never know. But I found that hand especially interesting on the turn. I think many times with top pair, we might just think, let's go ahead and, and bet. And now that I, I played it that way, I've kind of second-guessed That particular street, and I think now that there's a lot of merit, a great deal of merit to just checking behind on 4th Street and seeing what develops on the end. Checking on 4th allows us to just call if he bets the river, whereas betting on 4th, we might get check raised and have to call because we're holding the Ace of Spades. So I don't know if I mentioned that twice. If I did, I apologize. But again, I wasn't planning on doing a solo podcast tonight, so I'm trying to talk through these hands that I really haven't looked at in over a month. Uh, So bear with me. I have one more to share with you guys, and I think this one is interesting. Um, Again, give me feedback. Let me know what you guys think of my decisions in that pot that I just described, a pot that I lost with Ace-10 versus Ace-Queen when both of us had a flush draw. Okay, much later in the day, kind of towards the end of the day, actually, and I've recently been moved to a new table that uh, seems to be feeling quite positive. It is the last level of the day, and people are goofing off, joking around. Uh, Many of them have been at the same table all day, and they seem to be even borderline giddy about the fact that they're going to make day three. Um, there are some big stacks at the table, uh, and people are just generally in a positive mood. So I, I love coming to a table like that. I like to show up at a table where people are laughing and having fun and talking to each other and, you know, just enjoying the experience. Guys, none of us get to play the World Series of Poker main, ad- main event every day. So when we do, I think we should make the most of it. And there's nothing wrong with having some fun while you're playing cards. So here we are, 1,000, 2,000 with the 2,000 ante. So there is 5,000 in the pot uh, before the hand starts. And we now have about 250,000 in our stack. A player in third position opens to 4,500 with... The blinds of 1,000, 2,000 with the 2,000 ante, two folds, and then under the gun plus two, or as I call it, third position, opens to 4,500, and this player has about 135,000 behind, so he's doing quite well. He's got about 70 big blinds, right? Uh, His M is almost 30. He's doing well. Um. You know, we've got twice as much approximately and every action folds to me in the big blind holding pocket fours. Um, I know players that have started putting small pairs and even suited connectors into their uh, big blind three betting range. I don't do that very often. I think that the value of this hand comes mostly from flopping sets with it. So... Getting this attractive price, I'm just going to see a flop and usually play fit or fold, but not always. As you'll see, a little foreshadowing there. Spoiler alert, I'm not going to flop a set and I'm not going to give up. Uh, Okay, so let's talk about my opponent here. Uh, Really, really happy, older British guy, maybe in his late 40s, early 50s. Um, Very talkative, fun loving, smiling a lot. And important to note, when I first sat down, He said, oh, good, now I won't be the only one telling jokes, which kind of uh, intimated to me that he recognized me. And uh, that kind of started things off for me when I first got to that table. Um, Those who didn't know that I'm a comedian were informed of that fact by the ones who did. And so we kind of got some jokes going, and we were just really laughing it up and having a good time. So I've been at this table for maybe 15 or 20 minutes and so far... That's been kind of the vibe. The play has been mostly tight and players are, you know, excited to make day three, as I said before. Um, We're now in the last level of the day. Pocket four is in the big blind. I call. I'm up against, I'm heads up up against this British guy that I uh, mentioned. I should also say my vibe on him was that he's probably an amateur playing in his first main event. And I could be way off. Maybe he's played 50 of them. But I thought he seemed like a first-timer. So that's part of the read, so I wanted to include it uh, in the information I give as we discuss how I play the flop. Queen, eight, deuce, all clubs. And we have pocket fours, including the four of clubs. So we have a pair, a pocket pair between bottom and middle, with a four-high flush draw. Not much to write home about, I know, but a little something. The pot is 12,000. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, pot is 12,000. And I don't lead here. Um, I do have a leading range. Uh, I know a lot of players do not. And by the way, there was another computer that beat a bunch of uh, world beaters at multiplayer, no limit hold'em, And one thing, I don't know if you guys saw this article or not, um, about the mega computer that was beating some of the world's best No Limit Hold'em players in multi-way action, which is news because in the past there were several computers and other simulators that could beat players at Heads Up Limit Hold'em and did quite well at Heads Up No Limit Hold'em. But now there are computers that are doing well And one thing those computers are doing that almost none of us are doing are having a big leading range on the flop versus the pre-flop raiser, as we call it, donking. So the computers are telling us that we should be donking more often. So on this flop, I might lead out with a hand like jack-10 with a club, Uh, with a, so that would be a flush draw and a gut shot kind of combo draw type of hand. Um, obviously because I want to lead with that hand, I also want to lead with bottom set. Um, maybe sometimes something like eight, seven, uh, so middle pair, especially with a club, if I had the seven of clubs with it. So there are some hands that I would lead I don't think you need to have a big leading range, but I think that if you have a leading range, it can't just be sets or just flush draws. I think you need to lead some flushes, you need to lead some sets, and you also need to lead uh, some bluffs as well. Obviously, we want to be balanced, so uh, this isn't one of the hands that I want to lead out, but I'm not exactly planning to fold for one bet because uh, my hand could be good, if my opponent has something like ace-jack, ace-queen, sorry, uh, ace-king, ace-10, maybe some suited connectors, I might have the best hand. So I'm not quite ready to fold yet. And this is actually a hole in my game that I'm willing to mention here on the podcast. When I see a small pair, I think that I'm going to be able to just say, all right, well, I'll just play fit or fold, and if I flop, (laughs) a set. I'll continue. And otherwise I'm pretty much going to fold too, too often. I end up catching a little tiny piece, like a four high flush draw. And then I start thinking about all the hands I can beat and I don't just play fit or fold. So that's something I'm working on is that when I'm set mining and I don't mine a set, just living to fight another day. Anyway, in this spot against this amateur opponent, I checked. He bet 6,000 into 12,000. And I did call for all the reasons I just mentioned. Now the pot is 24,000. And the turn pairs the eight. Eight of spades hits the turn. So now we have a board of queen, eight, deuce, eight with three clubs and hero holding the pocket fours with the four of clubs, four of hearts. Uh, This is a good card for me to lead out on um i don't think my opponent ever has an 8 in his hand um because he bet the flop i think most of us if we have those kind of suited connector type hands in our in our range and we flop middle pair i mean he can't have a, a flush draw with it because the 8 of the suit is on the board. So if he's got something like eight, seven of diamonds or nine, eight of spades, um, he's got a little something here, but he probably won't see bet it because it's just not a good enough flop for him to bet. Uh, I think he might bet the turn if I check again and, and the turn bricks, but I don't think most of us are betting our middle pair there. And I also don't think that on the last level of day two, of the main event that your typical British amateur has many 8s in his range anyway. I'm not sure that he would even have played 9-8 eight or 8-7 eight, suited or not. So with all that in mind, I think this uh, card is, it gives me a range advantage, meaning that I think I can have the strongest hands here and my opponent can't unless he flopped 3 queens three deuces, or three eights, and now has four of them. Also, I'm not even sure that he would even open with pocket deuces. Uh, I don't think that I would, actually, with his stack. Anyway, uh, enough about that. I thought about leading, but I kind of got greedy. So this is a play that might not occur to all of the listeners, and I think it's one that uh, is worth considering. Um, Because... I plan to represent this eight. Um, I chose to check, hoping my opponent would bet so that I could raise. Um, It's definitely an unorthodox play, especially with all the clubs out there. I mean, I could be drawing virtually dead (laughs) if my opponent has a flush, but the fact that the board has paired means that my opponent has to be concerned um, when he gets check-raised. I also think that my opponent might bluff again if he's got something like Ace-King with the Ace of Clubs, and he should probably just throw that away if I check-raise him uh, big enough. So the plan is to check, hoping that my opponent puts in a small bet so that I can put in a big raise, uh, I'm also fine if he checks behind because now I kind of get one more pull to see if I can hit my four high flush and find out if it's any good or maybe even a river four that would give me a full house. So checking here is better than it might be on another board because getting having my opponent check behind is not as disastrous as it might be on another board, or even, for example, if I did not have a club in my hand. So I did check, and I was hoping my opponent would bet something like 9,000 into the 24,000 pot. Instead, he bet 14,500, and I must have looked surprised to see his sizing here. It's not that big. But it just kind of felt bigger than what I was expecting. And it felt like a bluff. I can't explain it, but it, the bet didn't make sense no matter what my opponent had. In the moment, at the table. It's the best I can do. Um, so I waited a second, and I was a little bit bewildered. Like, do I still want to follow through with my check-raising strategy, trying to represent an eight or better on this um queen-eight-deuce-eight eight board um, because I was a little surprised at my opponent's bet sizing. And then he spoke to me. I mentioned earlier, he is a very talkative and happy chap. So he says something like, I'm raising the, straight, raising the stakes or something like that. And there was something about him that made me think he was uncomfortable. Um, almost like he was trying to seem stronger than than how he really felt. Now when I talk about these things on the podcast, I know some of you think, look, this is hocus pocus. Um, you know, game theory has been mathematically figured out. Why don't you just stick to that uh, and and not read anything into the information that your opponents are giving you? And my answer to that is it's just it's too ingrained in my poker DNA at this point. I can't play poker without trying to analyze how strong or weak my opponents are, even though sometimes it hurts me. And that if I had just stuck to a mathematically correct GTO strategy, uh, I I might have won tournaments that I end up losing because I follow my instincts and end up being wrong. I'd still rather trust my gut and play the way that, that I know how to play, if that makes sense. And maybe it doesn't. But anyway, when he commented like that, I'm raising the stakes Um, kind of drawing attention to the fact that his bet was a little bigger than might be normal for the situation. Again, 14.5 into 24,000 isn't abnormally large, but it just felt big. And I think that he felt like it was big too. And telling me I'm raising the stakes, I felt that he was pretty weak. And I did decide to go through with my original plan. I made it 40,000 and was ready to move on. To the next hand. Now I just have to wait the 10 or 15 seconds for this British player to fold his junk hand and then we can move on with our lives. Um, To my shock, he called and now I'm out of position in a 104,000 chip pot with just a pair of fours with one card to come. I know that I was feeling tired at the end of a long day too. But still, it's unusual for my radar to be this far off, and I could not put my opponent on a hand at all. Um, the Rivers of Six of Spades for a final board of Queen of Clubs, Eight of Clubs, Deuce of Clubs, Eight of Spades, Six of Spades. So nothing really got there other than what? The 5-7? But for all intents and purposes, there's no uh, straight or or draws that got there that weren't already there on the turn. Um, The question is, with 104 in the pot and my opponent only having 90,000 behind, should we make a play or should we check and hope to see that pocket fours are good somehow. Um, I think, given the read and how sure I was of my read, that I should bet enough to put my opponent all in in this situation. Um, I do think it's possible that I'm beat. Like, what if our opponent has something like pocket fives or... Uh, maybe pocket sevens. Like, there are some hands that probably shouldn't have bet the flop. I mean, I shouldn't have bet the turn and definitely shouldn't have called the check raise. But if those hands have a club, they might have been tempted. Um, And those hands obviously can't call a river shove. The main thing is, it just doesn't feel like a queen or better. And it certainly didn't feel like a flush. Or full house or even trips. So I just, I feel like I have such a range advantage in this situation and the likelihood that my fours are good, even given my read that I have, that my opponent is weak. I mean, I have to acknowledge the fact that my read could be off, right? My reads are off sometimes. um, Probably not as often as other players reads are. Um, I've actually, I talked about this in the Alex Fitzgerald episode I actually have kept track of the times that I make a big play based on a read and how often those plays are right. And you know, I've won a good amount of uh, tournament chips trusting my reads in these situations. Um, but I don't know, maybe just the the fact that we're all tired and it's the end of a long day and generally speaking, you don't want to be putting up, trying to pull off big bluffs at the end of any day in the main event because players are tired and tired players call more. I think that was in my mind a little bit. And just the fact that I was confused, like, what the hell does this guy have? Um, I decided to check and hope that it was something like Ace King with the Ace of Clubs. He checked and said, I'm pretty sure you have me, mate. And every time they say that, you're drawing dead, right? He wins the pot with pocket fives. And the worst part... The fives were red. Um, I cannot understand my opponent's play in this hand. Okay, bet the flop. Fine, get it. Great. Why bet the turn? And why? Why, God, why would you call a raise on the turn with pocket fives, no club? Um, I did mention I had a read that this opponent was an amateur player. Um but I didn't think that this particular hand could be in his range really not without a club at least so that was very disappointing and left me with about uh, what is it like about 180,000 or so Um, so that was a pretty painful pot and a hand that has bothered me ever since it happened because it's a rare example when I have a strong read of my opponent's hand strength and I just didn't follow it and look it cost me because I don't think this guy even at the end of a long day is going to call all in with just fives here I mean unless he really read my soul (laughs) but who knows I mean there's a non-zero chance that he would call but it's pretty close to zero so uh you know there's one case to be made for look Clayton you missed the flop you had a small pair against a early middle position raiser just fit or fold and and get out of there Uh, you could say that and tell me that I shouldn't have gone so far with my fours in the first place but there's a part of me that thinks if you check raise the turn you have to know how you're going to respond to getting called I thought the chance of my turn check raise getting called was so small that I actually didn't consider what I might do in the event that that happened so sad to say I'm not proud of this one but that is a hand that I played Um, I can tell you the good news is that on the very last hand of day two I had ace jack as they announced final hand of the day I have ace jack in the big blind and defended and flopped ace jack seven against a player with Ace King who really, really, really overplayed his hand and I doubled up and ended day two with 403,000 tournament chips on a day when I started with 58. So I went into day three as a top 100 stack with something like 2,800 players left in the main event so that's where we'll pick up the next time I do a solo podcast which I hope won't be for a while I do have a number of guests that I've been uh, working on scheduling and as we know poker players may be not the most reliable (laughs) and responsible type so sometimes it just ends up being just you and me and I like it and I hope you do too so that'll do it for this week's episode I'm Clayton Fletcher for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, thank you all so much for listening.
0: Hold them, let them hit me, raise it, baby, stay with me Lock and intuition, play the cards with babes to start And after she's been hooked, I'll play the one that's on her heart Oh, whoa, whoa, oh, whoa, oh, oh, whoa, oh, oh, oh. I'll get her heart, show her what I I'll roll with her, hot hundred we will be. While little gambling is fun when you're with me it. Russian roulette is not the same without a gun And baby, when it's if it's not rough, it isn't fun, fun Oh, whoa, oh, uh.